0: This episode of Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. I've been trapped in this recording booth for four months. It's just me, my wife who is sitting beside me, and an iPad onto whose mirrored visage I have drawn two eyes and a mouth. It is my faithful friend, Reg Manifold. Reg Manifold brings me all the day's news and events, including Instagram, where I've only so far managed to follow Signal Sounds. I've been living vicariously through their cheeky posts and also becoming rather a fay with all the comings and goings of that shop in Glasgow. They've got the Euclidean pattern generator on steroids that is the Torso T1, the entire range of deeply strange error instruments modules, including a CV-controlled Walkman and a music box, simply mounted to a URAC panel with an output special edition wrong vector space modules are in and they've got the 512 vector sequencer in Knight Rider Black Oh, I've been debating that one incessantly with my dear wife and I think I have nearly convinced her I have begun to, I must admit, communicate a bit more electronically than via any other means in years last so Instagram is the closest thing I have to human contact Beyond that, of course, of my dear, dear wife. It's strange, though. Every time I post a picture of her, people comment, nice case, and how's that 512 vector sequencer treating you? I have to remind people. I'm not falling for that. I know my own wife. So, for your deep-seated needs, be they electronic music equipment or other, visit Signalsounds.com. That's Signalsounds.com.
1: Why, why Whoa, bleep. Hello and welcome to Why We Bleep. Now you're listening to my voice and you're thinking, gosh. What the devil has happened to Mr. Melodies? Well, don't worry, it's not your wireless on the blink. It's me, Tom Whitwell, the music thing modular chap. You know, soldering, cheering machine, keeps banging on about John Cage. Me. I'm here because this episode has a very, very special guest. I have the huge privilege and joy of talking with Mylar Melodies. That's right, he's the guest, I'm the host this was actually my idea. I thought after 33 episodes of Why We Bleep, that you, his audience, might want to get a better idea of who he really is. Uh, I was super pleased with how it turned out. So we talked about his background, how he started in music, and we talked about how he started his career answering the phones in the legendary music store Turnkey on Charing Cross Road, where I started my career wandering around, looking at equipment that I couldn't afford. Almost three-quarters of a million people have watched his Make Noise No Coast demo. Most people agree it's one of the greatest music gear demos of all time. Anyway, where it got interesting for me was talking about the difference between a review and a demo. Because obviously a demo is kind of a commercial thing. It's the job of a salesperson. Whereas a review is much more highfalutin. It's the job of a journalist, a critic. It's all about judging Weighing the evidence, the positives and the negatives, coming to a decision. But to make a demo, you have to understand the intent of the designer. What were they thinking? What were they trying to achieve? What decisions did they make about price and interface and what they kept in and what they left out? If you're a reviewer, you can ignore all that. Just say what you reckon. And I used to be a journalist and I edited a few music magazines. And I was always a bit... uh, iffy about the whole business of reviews so I found this a really interesting take. I'm sure you will too. So we talked about lots of other things which I won't explain now uh, because fortunately once I stop talking there is a podcast where you can hear us talking about those things. So enjoy it and don't worry next time Mylar will be back to introduce you himself.
0: And um, it looks like you've been doing some soldering. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always doing something. This sounds promising. <laughs> Making these things. What the devil
1: is that? So that's a program card for the <gasps> music easel.
0: Yes. All right, Mr. Put Billy, Billy there. Big Bucks with your book <laughs> Billy Book <Boogler> Big Bucks <laughs> with your big easel. <laughs> exactly I suppose you've because you spent all your money on your easel you now have to diy any accessories that you wish to have for it talk me through the like talk me through what it feels like to be in the upper echelons of musician and own i mean it's, it makes
1: me a, a, a very successful musician now <laughs> i'm very professional i come in here and i write songs mm. and i collaborate with other artists yeah.
0: and I put out a lot of music. I hear you're playing at Cafe Otto next week. You have residency yeah, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, as a
1: professional musician, um, a professional I'm instrument. I'm very much enjoying being a professional musician. That's so good. And how? And songwriting—that's the main thing. Uh, I yeah, need.
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, pop hits just fly out of yeah. that thing, don't they? Just like ugh. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Five note pop hits. Have you done any <laughs> music with it? I've played it a lot. <gasps> well that's it is a performance instrument, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it is a fun thing to play and to have, definitely. Do you what was your objective in owning it? Well
1: obviously it's a it's it's a big DIY project.
0: You didn't you built it. I bought it 95% built. I, for some reason, from, I, I just thought it was one of those the new ones that you buy.
1: No, no, it's an old, it's an old one. Or oh, wow. it's, it's a proper kind of clone one. I bought it from um, from Logan Erickson, yeah, and it was kind of ninety five percent complete. And he had, he was like, "I am never going to get around to finishing this." Do the five percent? And I sort of got a lot of it working. I then got really stuck with it <laughs> sort and awesome. was just really sad. Uh, I then gave it to Finley, who got it ninety nine percent working. But it still wasn't working, and it turned out the power supply in it was wonky. And so, once I got a proper power supply that worked, it worked properly and it was very pleasing. So that that was obviously a fun journey. Yeah, well, um, fun is. But it was because they are really like they're so intense to kind of try and work on inside, and all you know, all the schematics you have are literally hand-drawn 1970s schematics. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely quirky inside. It has, you know, it will have, like the whole thing with these program cards is it's like there's a switch, which is front panel, program card, both. You know, there's basically a switch. There's hundreds of little switches inside it, you know, electronic switches that switch between the front panel and this program card. So the kind of classic program card like that is just set up so you can put resistors into it and you make a patch... And then you drop the patch and you switch over and the whole thing, it's like it's a proper preset. So that
0: makes the whole thing like has just got twice as many weird kind of connections in it. You tempted otherwise. to take that out, but it sounds like you're really, you've maximized the program card possibilities.
1: Well, that's it. Once Because it's there, you can do all this Weird stuff with it. You can access things, and you can't access them from the front panel. You know, the way Euro rack is a really fun format for DIY. These things are really interesting because you literally just, you know, you have that blank one, and it's got all the inputs, all the outputs, kind of power. You can put pots and sockets and switches and stuff there,
0: and you can just,
1: you know, get out of it.
0: <laughs> Make it do weird things. I've thought about those program cards before, and often thought like. Part of what appeals to me about a music easel is the fact that it is unchanging. It's the opposite of a modular that you're constantly invited to feck with. And with this, it's actually, for once, it stays as it is, and you just actually have to learn it. So in a weird, twisted way, it feels like... I suppose it's, it's tinkering but with a, some breaks applied because you've presumably got limitations in what you can change. But I suppose then the question is, if, you, if you're going to play God and like outdo Don Buchler's own design by adding to it, well, what, would you, what do you change? What do you add?
1: Well, one of the weird limitations that is kind of annoying is you can't access the audio path at all in it. You can only access the CV. So that's quite an interesting kind of weird limitation. And actually, it would be really nice to be able to access the audio. There's lots of things that you'd want to do. If you just kind of turn it on and do the obvious things with it, then it's a very limited kind of two oscillator monosynth with no resonant filter. Then when you when you get into it, there's all these weird little weird things where you're like, "Why is it like that?" And then you realise what it's done. You know, things like the the two output channels have low pass filters on them. And they are, they happen to be out of phase, which means there is a little switch where you can patch one into the other and it becomes a high pass filter. Oh. But also, I think one of the things is it's not something that he spent like 15 years perfecting. Mm. You only made 15 of them, whatever. So it was like, (laughs) I'll have a go at this. This is interesting. And you can see there's so much thought's gone into it and so much kind of, as you said, interesting, weird ideas in it. But, you know, he he would have looked at it later in his life and just went, well, that's
0: wrong. That's not, or, yeah. that's not how it should be. That's very limited and it's not... Know, yeah. I don't know what his grand aims were, like, other than to make tools for musicians. But it certainly feels... I mean, I remember playing with the plug-in version and thinking within minutes, like, I need a physical, the physical thing. Yeah. Like, it's one of those things where you realise that it's designed the way it is for human hands to interact yes. with and experiment with. I was... Um, I've been reading or listening and watching interviews with this guy David Vancouvering uh, not anything to do with the city in America in Canada but the um Vaco founder and minimo super salesman who basically helped oh, okay. promote initially like David Vancouvering was he was the guy well, or a guy who went on the road and did shows and sort of and basically buttered up musicians with this new instrument, the minimoog to try and literally stuff them in his car, got on the road yeah. he went out to like clubs and he would go and he you know got this fantastic new thing the minimoog and and I want you to play it tonight. Put it on stage and put it and put the Mulgar on there. And then he would say, you know, he would work with, and he says, like, I would have colored tape and he would have like strips of red tape and green tape. And he'd work with the musician to work out like five different sounds and he would mark them with colored tape. So it would be the red sound is all the red settings, the green sound yeah. is all the green settings, you know, oh, my, my pink sound, your green sound. And then, and then, after the first set for that night, he'd go up to the musician and say, OK, well, I've got to go and do some stuff. Um, just, just for safety's sake, I'm going to take out the fuse um, just to disengage the instrument just for the, for the time being, but I'll come back later. And he would do that so that the people would literally be like, I want you to play the Moog. And the guy's like, I can't play it. But it would be on stage. <laughs> and he it, and it would basically, like, kind of hoodwink them into, like, realising the essential nature of having a mini Moog. Um, and I say this is all very sort of roundabout way. I mean, he sold a lot I and mean, he was hugely instrumental in popularizing them. But um, he's also an amazing, I mean, he talks a lot about music technology. And there's a thing he says where he's like, he dings the ARP 2600. Yeah. Um, for having sliders, because he's like, sliders have poor resolution. Yeah, it may have been Bob Moog who said this that you're. The resolution that you have with your hand turning a knob is far greater than with a slide. Totally true. Moving your whole arm.
1: Totally agree with him. The thing you can do though with slides, as you, you say with the ARP, is you can kind of do that, and you can just you can do multiple things at once. which yeah. You can't really oh, do I twist. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I remember watching there's videos of like Charles Cohen playing it, and you will you just see these little tiny kind of Gestures and that kind of thing that you can't do quite the same with kind of rotary thing. But it's mm. yeah, I, I'm 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 very ambivalent about about sliders for
0: I'm kind for of for some uh, things. It, basically, I do like sliders, and I think I wonder if it is half like visual the fact that you can literally. I mean, it's. Um, Hoojima Flip in that amazing like art documentary, um, Edgar Winter is like you know I can or maybe yeah. someone else says like I can look across the room but from the other side of the room I can see what that art twenty six hundred is doing, which you can't limit. Yeah. So you know on stage it's visual you can see where the settings are, but it is true about the resolution. It was I inter- suddenly as soon as I heard that comment I was like oh yeah on the new Roland Jupiter X note that the sliders have been preserved except for the cutoff knob. They've made the yeah. cutoff knob a knob, and I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah." Like I remember yeah. seeing that the first time and thinking, "Like oh, what?" Like you've how cheesy it's been turned into a knob. Like it's it should be a slider like everything else, but actually, I really you know I don't know better. So I suppose that's Roland's it. There's also defense.
1: not that many things that you need yeah. that super super precision. Mm. Whereas it's it's, it's frequency based, isn't it? Like if, yeah. if for an oscillator frequency, you'd need it for a cutoff. If you have got resonance up, you'd need it, but for nothing else. There's nothing else you really need at that that fine
0: hmm. I thought. Well that's why you have on the twenty six hundred you have a separate fine tune slider because they realised that oh, wasn't okay, enough. Yeah. It's not like a vernier dial on uh synthy, which is like the ultimate in resolution, but it's there's a t- two sliders because it, it's true, there isn't enough resolution in a slider.
1: Actually on the easel they have pots above the frequency. So you have a slider, yeah. of course, and a little pot at the top for for fine tune. Oh that darn he thought of everything.
0: most things (laughs) so yeah what do you want to do you want to what are we doing here are you asking well i think i think i should start
1: yeah by welcoming you to to the show thank you for the first time because you've never been on it before i've never been on the show before (laughs) so i think if i welcome you to the show thank you and then i am interested in in the origin story and then, no doubt, we will drift into talking about something else. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, why not? Um, okay, so, uh, how am I going to... It's not easy, you know, this whole question. I know it's not easy.
0: Well, this is this is why it's taken me five minutes trying to make it. Sound super natural. To it's, it. Like, it's hard. I've found it's yeah, well, difficult what to... you'll do is
1: re-record that bit afterwards, obviously. I
0: will, but I'll, I'll re-dub it. Uh,
1: <laughs> I am very pleased today to welcome, for the first time on Why We Bleep, uh, somebody who's never been on it before as a guest, who is the... The man with a thousand hand gestures. Uh, the the <laughs> the, so the man okay. with the upside down head. It yep. is um, Mr. Mylar Melodies.
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's really nice to be here. And where whereabouts are you in the world? Um, I'm in Leeds, which isn't London, where I used to live, and isn't North Yorkshire where I was born. Um, I've like done like a massive V in my life that's like from from North Yorkshire, like the middle of nowhere, where I grew up, to London. Because you basically, I think, I mean, I know tired of London, tired of life. And I think it's that whole thing of you going to a city like that just to be the opposite of where you've been. Well, I went to university in like Middlesbrough as well. So they, you know, I've kind of experienced village life and minor town life and was like I really 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 need to connect with something culturally and (laughs) I'm not going to achieve that in in Yorkshire so at least in North Yorkshire where where I was which is which is weird because I think I was and we do all you know remotely you can connect with culture I suppose in the sense like and for me electronic music had grown through my brothers like playing me electronic music to try and inspire me and so I'm I'm absolutely I'm a product of brothers in that sense of having older brothers who inspire you or try to and succeed to some degree um, maybe not what they expected but <laughs> did succeed and then also being in a place where nothing happens and where I couldn't drive and there were no friends in my immediate, like environs that I could well like not really that I could walk to. I would have to drive to see my friends. So I was like, I'm trapped in this yeah. house with and we had a big house that was like really great. I and mean, it had a lot of space. And there were even there was this annex that had the entire top floor was just open and basically was empty. And my brothers had all left because they all went to boarding school or packed off to boarding school. And I think my parents were like, saw pity on me or perhaps didn't, weren't able to afford to send the fourth child to boarding school as well. It was just like, all right, you, you don't have to go if you don't. They all do. Um, so... <laughs> We don't love them as much, but you're you're okay. You're the, you're the chosen one, and so it meant I was I was at home alone and with all this space. Um, and I've said before, like the way that I got into electronic music was because I'd a great uncle of mine had died, and I didn't know him really at all. I didn't know him to you know really very well at all. And really, the only time I've ever seen him was when I went to my great auntie's funeral. Which he was at, and I think because we were the only dis- direct descendants or sort of related descendants, he left me and my brothers some money in his will, uh, which was, you know, to a 16-year-old, a lot of money um, and was enough to buy a stereo and also to buy music gear. And so I frittered most of it, I frittered all of it, but, but that investment in the hobby and actually buying some kit, which I did, and buying a stereo, which I did. I, like I've thought about it a lot, how it's that thing of you get, um, it's, it's two things. It's having access, like access to music tools is hugely valuable if done at the right time, and it makes me think of like um, you know, youth clubs, and like talking yeah. to Ronnie Size, who's like, he worked in like a youth centre, like he taught kids how to make drum and bass and use Ataris and make music. You need a place, you need access to the tools and you need the kind of creative freedom to make mistakes and to sort of play. And that's the kind of key to discovering a new talent, hobby, capability. You, you have to have access and you ha- it has to be kind of... Guilt free and and consequence free. You can't feel pressured or shamed or sort of you know. And, and I had all the, I realized that I had all those things like and because also one of my brothers had um is a DJ and had an, he had an MC three hundred three and he had an MPC and so and I played with the MC three hundred three. So actually, that device, notorious as it is, is like kind of one of the first bits of electronic music proper electronic music gear that I played with. And so that was when it was your your brother's or your brother's friend? It was my brother's. He owned it. Like, yeah. And so i have seen an MC-303 and I'd played with it and I was like just playing presets and muting them on and off. And then it was sort of connecting that I was like, this is a piece of electronic music equipment. This is kind of what Orbital use, which I was listening yeah. to. And that was the band that inspired me. And I had enough fun with it that I was like, oh, I could... Just well, sort of do this. I can mute things on and off. It's not very hard. Like I didn't do any sequencing, or I didn't create a pattern from scratch. I didn't read the manual. I Literally was just playing presets and muting them on and off. But that just that little kind of spark of experience was like, oh, you know, this is something. And so that then. And it, the other thing was that because he'd been doing his research, he'd bought lots of issues of Future Music. So then I was ah, like yeah. leafing through Future Music as a way of finding out what what gear should I get? Because this was before the internet; there was no. I mean, it was just as the internet was being popularized. Um, and did you did you have a kind of uh, a,
1: a sort of mentor or somebody who taught you stuff?
0: No, um, not at all. No, absolutely not. Um, and so much so that I remember when I was at school, in secondary school and I bought all my kit and I'd been using it for a few years and I was like playing some music to people like who were on like the music courses there and they was like, how are you doing this? Like, How have you done this? I was just like, I just have bought the gear and farted around a lot. Like you just kind of did it by itself. I truly there was no like making electronic music, but and I mean there was those future musics, but I didn't I don't remember buying any issues myself, and I don't remember. I remember that what I got from them was, like, the guidance on what gear to get. So it was like, get a Novation Nova, get a Yamaha RM1X, get a Spirit Folio F1, be a few of the bits, and a Samson mic, which I've still got. Somewhere, like. um, <laughs> it's actually good, Samson S2. Here it is. My dad got this for me. In, um, but, yeah, like, I, there was no – there was no internet. There was no YouTube till – 2005 so there at the time it was yeah the guy going to the zoo so it's it wasn't really like it was or is
1: and what were what were the things you bought when you fir- the very first things you
0: bought then i got a yamaha got su 700 i think was technically the first thing i got which is very weird sampler that looks yeah it's like um it's actually, weirdly, it actually really looks incredible it's like big blue um, vacuum tube screen with like um, NPCs or like um, 909 style clackety transports and like coloured pads and it's really weird um, and I don't think that history is going to, you know, in 10 years or even now I don't think you're going to be like these are the new NPC 60s and I mean I can't, probably yeah they will be because it's, you know, <laughs> There's no accounting for taste, but um, it's not a cool device. I remember it was sort of, I would take like bits of like Groove Armada or bits of like an Ackerbilk record and just like loop them and just let them play. Um, and I had this RM1X because um, I then I kind of got an RM1X, I got a Novation Nova um, as well. I put it all together. What I didn't realize in hindsight was that the RM1X is a really amazing sequencer and I could have made like. Brilliant, sequenced, you know, proto-housey jams. But I think quickly I was like, how do I get all these things to like sing together? It doesn't work. And so I realised that if I commandeered like the home computer and got like a dodgy version of Cubase, then I I would be able to sequence all the gear and that's how I could make arrangements. And that's what I did. So I I ended up using the RM1X as a sound module and... I suppose the weird thing is that, like, computer-based music making has always been hugely important to me and has actually been, like, how I've made a lot of music, but I don't really talk about it at all, except, like, now I'm starting to make videos in, like, the current, my current, like, day employment where I can talk about plugins and do stuff on yeah. it's. But the computer-based sequencing, it's was just, like, it was brilliant. I think about how like I don't how did I get through that stage where you're it's like learning to draw, where like you're you have got enough talent to know that you're what you want and also enough talent to know that you're not getting it. And how do you muscle on through that stage until the results that come back are actually satisfying and you continue the hobby without getting so frustrated that you stop? Um and I think I think I always just really enjoyed like the process of Like The cool thing about making electronic music is that you can just you, you can sit down and you can make something that's like bigger than yourself, if that makes sense. It's like a way of literally building a kind of poetic structure that's far larger than your voice can carry. And you can do it all by yourself, brick by brick, slowly and steadily and build it up and, you know, and you can stand back and say, I've made a really well-considered piece of music, or I've tried to anyway, and you think, how have I done that? And you don't remember all the decisions that you made as you went along, and it all just blends into one, but it's it's by making one decision after another that you do something, and then you think, oh, I know it could kind of go with that, and you look for the sound. And I do remember that the the rm1x was good like i worked really well with having sound modules and kind of fast access to stuff and i think in hindsight it's kind of realizing that um you know all the clever clogged crap of like modular and designing sounds from scratch is not conducive to writing music quickly Uh, and so (laughs) What I've ended up doing with modular is like building music systems that just spit music out. I think the whole thing of like, if you were trying to use modular as a way of doing sound design as part of songwriting, I think it's, you have to have the concentration of aphex twin i'm sort of only now like realizing weirdly that what was so good about the way that i made music in 2001 was just because i was not really doing a lot of sound design i didn't really know i didn't know how synths worked the novation nova was like astronomically complicated to me i didn't understand how it worked um i just used some presets i actually bought one again recently and it it is a really cool synth but even now it's hard to use even knowing what I know and having best filled lots and bought and sold lots since then, I guess what I'm saying is like, yeah, I'm sort of weirdly coming full circle or at least I've, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I've just never, I've never stopped making music on a computer. And I've still, I've just bought my like yearly, well, I've got a number of like acquisitions, but I think I actually bought with my own money is I bought a Mac M1, M1 Mac yeah. Mini, and that's just like it's great. Like it's really good. <laughs> like it's a really, really good computer. And for making music with plugins, where you just want to throw, 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 quick, 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 add that, add that, add that, add that. It's really good because you never have to stop. Uh, so, so that I, I did like a novelty thing where I, I ran. Every single Archeria plugin in V Collection 8 at once making sound. Like I made a chat that had 28 parts going at once, which sounds like a complete wall of sound mess. But it just, it was like 43% CPU at that time. Because did the fan come on? No, it did not. The fa- I mean, it is, it is absurd how the fan doesn't yeah. come on. The irony is, I, and I was going to like, I was thinking about this, like, think about how my school had no music technology at all. I didn't study music at school. Like, I didn't have a mentor. I really did just do it. And, and I was just, l- my mentors were like the idea of Orbital. It was basically like yeah. thinking about, and actually still now I think drives me on some level, is thinking about my heroes in like a little dingy bedroom with a setup that isn't as good as the one that I've got and making much better music with it. You know, it's sort of that kind of thing. But what I was going to say, what was amusing to me is the fact that the computers at school were Acorns, which are ARM computers. Um, And I I was like, oh, ha ha, isn't that? There's some kind of delicious irony that I've ended up with and what is effectively the Acorn has become the best computer in the world. Um, It's a BBC Micro+++. plus 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 we can run elite at like really good graphic settings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, when you, when you were starting out, one of the things i found is when I think back to when I was starting out, and actually when I think back to, you know, not long ago, I'm really conscious of what I didn't know and didn't understand. <laughs> so for me, when I was at school, I was in, in bands, but I I bought a MS-10 from the... You know, second-hand shop for like seventy-five quid. Oh my god! <laughs> and I remember now, just not. You know, I could make it sort of do things a bit, but I couldn't consciously, rationally at all, understand what it was doing at all. Yeah. And then i i had a I had a guitar teacher who was was that kind of mentor figure, and he would a mate of his would say, "Oh, I need. I can you look after this Juno sixty and this TR 606 for me?" And he'd be like, "Oh you know tom you, you look after those for a bit, so we would have something like that for like a, a summer and but again, I will think back to that, and my kind of understanding of that was so it just wasn't you know i didn't i didn't kind of i didn't I didn't get it or have any way of learning it. I didn't have a real goal, I think with it just this would have been kind of mid eighties the electronic music thing came a bit later was it felt like it was quite clear how it how it made and how it worked. Like you listen to an acid house record, and you could kind of work out what was doing, what was going on a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You could kind of imagine that it was something that you were you were pasting these bits together, and it would make sense. Whereas if you listen to like a Human League record, like the, you know something like from Dare, it's incomprehensible to me how something like that can come together. Like I was listening to a Keith Fullerton Whitman. In fact, a live set of him playing at Café Otto the other day. <laughs> yes. Went I have <laughs> no no notion whatsoever what is happening here. Mm. I, I cannot yeah, I make any sense of unpicking it. And it's, it's the way it feels, that sort of music feels very kind of infinite in a way. And you kind of, you can't, you, I just can't. Grasping. It's a bit like when we were talking about the music easel or, or the other thing I bought was a Prophet 6, which are both kind of closed, limited machines compared to a modular. And they do feel very different. You feel like you can, you can, it's not that they're limited and they can't make lots of different sounds, but you feel like you can imagine the kind of wall around them. Yeah. Uh, and you can, like, there are some records you listen to and you can imagine how it came together and you can kind of, I couldn't make it, but I could kind of see what the parts are and how they might click together. Whereas a modular or what I used to have, which was the DX7, is so vast and so incomprehensible. And you, you would load up these presets and go, I have no consciousness at all of how somebody can take six sine waves and make them sound like a guitar where you can hear the finger moving on the frets. Yeah, yeah. How is that a thing? You can have it. So you press it, and it says one, two, three, and it's made from a bunch of sine waves and envelope generators. <laughs> and I could, you know, just couldn't. Again, you fiddle with it, and almost everything sounds like white noise almost uh, until you until you reach those points. Whereas with with something like a Prophet Six, anything you do with it sounds pretty nice. I think that that difference between the things that you can conceive and you can understand, and things that are just totally impenetrable i think you know for me
0: i suppose it's then it leads to the question of like what is valuable in music equipment and i mean it's well with regarding what you said i mean actually you just immediately made, made me think of like listening to listening to like drugs in 2001 in my dad's car Like, i remember i bought that in ripon at um a record shop that is long since gone i think it's a butcher's now <laughs> Uh, probably a better business. Maybe the same guy. And I remember listening to that and, and going, because I think I thought the same thing that you did, where it's like, where with listening to Orbital, you can understand, you yeah. can hear the parts. You can sort of hear them. You can hear them come in. You can hear them go away. So you can hear what's, yeah. what's separate and what's not. And when you listen to Aphex Twins music, particularly that album, like the fast what I now know is tracker music. I'm like, it is truly incomprehensible how it is made. Um, And I've like, that has, I think remained like, and still remains like the music that is the most captivating because once you learn how electronic music's done, it's like, it's like knowing how the magic trick is done to uh, to a certain extent. Um, That doesn't reduce the value. It's like when you say like dissecting like Blue Monday, doesn't the key is I could I can have a go at making a very good approximation of every single sound in Blue Monday, yeah. and I can with enough time I can work out all the parts. I can build the track again, but yeah. I will never be able to rebuild any of the tracks that are in Drugs.
1: But I suppose I wonder if as well that is when you get into systems. I want you know I mm. wonder if he could rebuild any of those songs,
0: any of those possibly tracks. not because that's a good question.
1: Um, I think that's where I found with. With modulo it's so interesting in that you can and particularly with feedback, once you're doing things with feedback, you're completely not controlling it. And feedback is so even in something like a tracker where you're, you know, telling sending one set of commands to it and then sending another set of commands to it and they're both acting on the same time, mm. it's completely out of your
0: control what that is actually. Doing. The thing is, I don't think he was doing... I think all that music is carefully programmed. It's None of it's algorithmic, but not a right, bit yeah. of it. It's all... But I think you could also make a case that perhaps in a sense it's algorithmic because he is clearly so fluid and pro- proficient with it that he can write as fast as he can think. And I suppose in yeah. that sense, you get into a situation where... It's like when you've written a piece of music and you stand back and you can't remember, like, how did this even come into being? You know, it's you've you've become so fluid with something that it's like it just magically appears. And I guess um, the value, I suppose, of the tracker is the speed and fluidity. When you're fast enough with it, it's it, we're all chasing that like brain-to-techno interface. You know, the thing that can yeah. just go from one to the other as fast as possible. And it's it's definitely what. Um, I saw, I mean, I saw the sneak peek of one of your questions, which was what is, um, what makes a piece of gear memorable and special for you? And I was thinking about yeah. that. And my answer is this is what I just said is basically how fast and how, how fast is it to be satisfying, um, And I think that's like, how quickly can it satisfy you, I suppose? Which is kind of, I mean, lazy and I'm definitely, I can't remember who said this, like musicians are, oh, it was um, Colin Newman. I did an interview with him and he's like, musicians are inherently lazy. (laughs) They're they're looking for fast access to things, like the the pedal that makes the sound, the the one knob that makes it sound good. Um, And I think that there is, for me... And that's the problem with the dx7 is it's but but i think also it's it's also what i was saying about when when i first started making music and what i realized i gravitated to things that would just give me a sound instantly and i because i didn't understand sound design and i think the hard lesson that i'm has taken me 20 years to learn is that i don't have a process and sound design should be or could be a separate process to the writing process and you you can have a period where you make sounds you can have a period where you make music um, and I get tremendous satisfaction from just sitting down in front of a computer like with Ableton Live and just throwing plugins and just doing really basic sounds that have lots of release and just bugging out to them and, and actually yeah. I've had like one of the best sort of most productive experiences with synthesizer on my phone where all it is is just a little polysynth, and what's great about it is it's literally just 32 steps and you just put little dots on a grid and there's no more to it than that and so yeah. and because you're just listening to a loop ad infinitum you are forced to crystallize that loop into absolutely the best and most endlessly listenable form of itself because you're hearing it you're hearing it over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and if you're not to go mad you need to make it the best loop you've ever heard and you slowly iterate until it's at a point where you're like that's just great and I can just sit for um I'm like before we were here I was we were, I moved back in with my parents like the cool kid I am and, then, and I would go for a walk up the lane and listen to those those riffs you know just playing and playing and playing because it's and that's So I don't know. I suppose it's just those are hard lessons. But you're absolutely right that the the point is that there's tools for different things. But I'm, I suppose, at the end of the day, the key thing is like I'm still amazed by so much music that people write. Another artist like that is Lawn. If you ever listen to Lawn, how I haven't listened to it. it. It's one of the hallmarks of an amazing music is often where it's like I don't recognize. Any of the instruments or sounds, yeah. I've, I've literally there's not one seven hundred seven kick in this whole thing. You know, <laughs> it's just nothing. It's all completely yeah. from a drawn from a different palette. Um, and I've like got grand designs to. I mean, to the left of me, I've got like this little like mini tower of um, the grandmother, the ARP twenty six hundred, and like a tiny bit of modular, and it's sort of. What I wanted to do was um, basically do like, um, I bought a Yamaha TX-16W, which um, should belie the Apex twin nerdery in my complete belendery that I've bought the sampler that he's used because he says it's good. Um, But mainly because I just wanted, I did want like a nice sizzly sampler, but I just can't be asked with an AKI-S series having tried one I'm like, it is literally like having your teeth pulled out and so the TX16W seems like it's like the best it's the sizzle with a modern, well it's not a modern interface, it's like a vintage interface but it's like a modern reinterpretation without going massively into it, but basically there was a new firmware for that sampler that was created by a team of people who were not related to a yamaha were just so effed off that it was a really good sampler that was hampered by a diabolical interface that they completely rebuilt it from scratch and sold it and now they give it away and actually there's a plug-in version you can get which runs the actual code and um, from sonic charge um but i wanted to try like making drum kits with uh, this this little rig and you know just use the sampler and force myself to stop using the like same sounds and same systems and kind of force myself out of old habits. And it's, um, I've not done, done any of this because I'm too busy, but I'm kind of building towards, I'm trying to sort of all these, all this gear and all of this, these things are just like hacks basically to try and hack an effective way of making music, whatever that may be. Um, and to have different ones to occupy different types of headspace when you're, you know, when um, thinking about like what Vancouvering said, where he was like, there's in this, there's this Nam interview where it's like, have you ever seen those like Nam oral histories? They're like, oh yeah, yeah. There's some really, I mean, there's, they're amazing because they're all just like people from the industry, the music technology industry and music industry. And there's one with Vancouvering who's long since deceased and. Um, he talks about, um, I, I wrote down the quote um, because he's talking about technology and he helped make the orchestra on, um popularize the mini Moog. And he also into like 2000, like right when I was getting to making music, they made this, him and Bob Moog made an interactive piano that had a flat screen computer built in with like um, music lessons and, different sounds oh, okay. and so the whole idea is it was like a piano you can sit in front of it and instead of sheet music it was like a computer with the internet and it would teach you to play the piano and it would you could call up different sounds you could play along and it was gamified and is that and it was all touchscreen i was like this is actually like a good idea like there's this is objectively a good idea and clearly like quite well done but you know, I imagine it was quite expensive and a lot of people are yeah. like, well, I'm like, I don't know if my kid's going to get into the piano, so I'm going to buy one of those. But yeah, he talks about like, he had an out-of-body experience when he was having a heart operation and he heard, he had the thing of like, as he died, his like vision opened up into a tunnel and he said he heard chords that he'd never heard, like his orchestra made chords, you know, but... I heard chords I've never heard before. And then he's talking um, about um, Royale, uh, who, well, Royale's the name of the instrument. There's this muse- musician um, who, I forget, his name is Victor Wooten's brother. Um, and he's like a kind of futurist and jazz musician, I think, because I've never heard of him before. But he's got this device, which is like a, um, he's building his own musical devices, basically, that can play different chord structures and intervals and stuff. And he's like... He says, and when I, I saw Royale's device or the Royale, he's calling it, and I heard the chords, I heard the chords that I heard in my out-of-body experience from the, this cosmos. And he says, like, some of us have been committed to take technology and give, like, give our children, our grandchildren, a bigger lump of clay like, and let them shape it and, and express what they feel. And he's like, what would they feel? when they can express the frequencies of the cosmos, you know? And as he said this, he like cracks, he's like starting to like tear up. It's like amazing. You know, he's like the, the function of technology is to give future generations a bigger ball of clay with which to shape their ideas and express, express for like technology can help future generations express things more effectively or like express new things that, that, previous te- limitations for technology meant they couldn't express themselves you know what I mean it's that idea that yeah. and that is, that is fascinating on like a real like what a great celebration of technology that it be the that it let you express some new emotional express the inexpressible um, and that's certainly when he says like expressing the music of the cosmos I'm like wow that's definitely he's talking about a modular synth isn't he I mean that, that's <laughs> surely how we're going to express I mean Or it could be a DX7 patch that's... I think it's probably a DX7 patch with the (laughs)
1: microtuning.
0: Well, sadly, you've sold yours, so that's you out of of that game. You have to find on your music.
1: And I think the amazing thing when you were talking about when you started is that had it been 10 years later, you would have been able to do it for free immediately, downloading your...
0: I mean, I cracked version of fruity loops. Whatever it was, cubase, apologies to uh, yeah. I've, um, now I've got NFRs of everything, so I, I get yeah. it without paying. Now it's same, you know, but legal, so it's fine.
1: But that 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 incredible democratization of this. I mean, there was a, there was a story I was reading about uh, just how in Argentina there was a big program to give laptops to schoolchildren. And suddenly, five years later, there's a massive electronic music scene in in Argentina from those exact kids That's who were given amazing. machines, and they all plugged into that. You know, obviously, you know, what else amazing. are they going to do with it? And, and and you're seeing that, you know, literally everywhere. And so the, the kind of... Those stories of people who have unusual access to the devices suddenly all kind of evaporate a generation later because... You know, everyone anyway. It. Don't yeah'
0: I anyway, mean, yeah, and you like,
1: do see these scenes all over the world. when I was in Portugal, there's a whole scene in in um Lisbon that is exactly that you know kids with laptops making electronic music that doesn't sound like
0: doesn't sound quite like anything else, yeah, um
1: and it, and that's happening you know just everywhere.
0: I mean, I was looking at uh, murder beats. It's like a kid from Canada. He's like a like twenty year old or like under twenty year old and it's just a and it's like all these footage of him in a studio, but he's just on his laptop and he's just got Fruity yeah. Loops. And it's like that's my instrument, it's Fruity Loops on a laptop. And it's like fair play, you know. And that you know, Skrillex, laptop music, and it's there's a lot of these people who've made like tremendous amounts of success and money from just like their parents' laptop or desktop computer, yeah. you know, back in the day. It is wild. Um, and, it, you know, the, the limitation of the laptop, you know, the, that music, that it's not stopped anyone from making amazing music. I mean, we're always, like, chasing. That's the weird thing about the M1, you know. I'm like, it's very powerful. Isn't this amazing? You know, isn't this unlocking new possibilities? But then I'm like, well, Aphex was making drugs on like a a 1999-spec computer, or possibly even earlier, like, and trackers are very, you know, all it is is just some samples being played. I mean, it is so basic that, of course, like it was Amigas or whatever that were doing it originally. And so in a sense, like, we've not needed powerful computers. Um, I suppose that I bring up the M1 just because then it's like, I do wonder what will... What can the future generation of kids do with when their home computer is so powerful it can do all this stuff with no breaks? Like, like what does what do most people have any business owning a com? Or you know, what business do anyone does anyone have owning a computer as powerful as an M1 that isn't a musician or a video editor? It's like, well, what will you do when you've got not limitless, but tremendous reserves of power in your computer and you, you don't... And I don't know if the, the joke is whether it makes for better music. Like, you know, the no. Blue Monday is an example of how, you know, when you break it down, it doesn't take very long because it's got three parts at, yeah. you know, at a time, you know, and, and some of them are just like a guy singing. So it's not, there's not, it's not about power or it's... But I suppose the curiosity is like, what are there other... Things around the corner, like the bionic chip and all this sort of stuff. Like, what was what all that about? Like, what, when Apple are saying, like, we've put on the latest technology for allow for your artificial intelligence to be simulated for, for all those artificial intelligence things that I'm doing on my computer, it's like, what? Like, I mean, am I I'm the only person who's like, well, sorry, what? What's-? But you, you,
1: well, you may, but if you, I mean, you know, if you use Photoshop, there are bits of that. Oh, counter Account of that, though.
0: Yeah, there are it's, things like using neural things. And...
1: Yeah, and and well, they're just. And in fact, your phone's full of it. You know, if you're ta- if you've got a funny app that's swapping your face with somebody else's on your phone, that's what will be billed as AI. or what will be built as machine learning. I don't know. I obviously don't know that much about it. Nah, but I do mean, either.
0: Well, I mean, that's my point. Is it's like, what is this? What is this for? Like all of this power? <laughs> like that's. More and more realistic interfaces. Really the like most leather that looks a lot like leather. Yeah. <laughs> you can zoom in and see every pore of the... the what, Simulating
1: the, the bulb, you uh, know, incandescent in bulbs rather than LEDs. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's going to be a one, lot more, the overload, lot like... more
0: glowy. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, I suppose. You could have even better analogue synths, but it doesn't, you know, well, most simulate it. but I mean, they're pretty damn good now. Like,
1: it just seems like a... I mean, I, to me, the music... Software like that is a pretty has been a pretty solved problem for you know ten years i it's mean really you, good, you've, yeah. you've been able to stack up a bunch of
0: reverbs and a bunch of simulations of things and record fluidity and as we talk about that idea of like you know imagining apex with player pro in the year two thousand like he's he's fast with it. he can just go right, that now this right now this right now this yeah and and if you're stopping to freeze or if you're you know, there is, I load up sessions and literally I am, on my old computer, I'm, up, I'm utterly at the limit of the headroom and right, it's like okay. stuttering and and there's no sense that I can then add new things. I've got to do all of this like laundry to fix yeah. what's there and freeze it before I can do anything else. And it's, I suppose that is true, like the mm. idea that you don't have to, there are no breaks and you can just keep, you know, working on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing on a session so that you keep it you know, a fluidity and complexity to your music. You're not just recycling the same instruments and parts because those are the ones you bounce down. I mean, that is a... There's a physical, real-world benefit that may improve music because you're not stopping to do housekeeping in the middle of the creative process. Like, you could argue you may achieve flow, you know, more quickly because you're not stopping to think. And And that that might be where in the... You know, one of the things I watched this
1: year was that Beatles film. I've started watched. watching that as well. And in that, you see the the old professional studio system where they turn up at a place that is perfectly set up for them to work in and they have any amount of tea and toast brought to them and they will say, you know, press record and it's recorded. There was that amazing bit though where, where there's a bit where Glyn Johns is like, should we keep that one? And they're like, yeah. He's like, it, it's like it's eight pence a mi- eight eightpence a foot. This tape, you know, <laughs> do you want to keep all of it? And they're like, yeah, I think we should probably keep it. <laughs> and he's like, all right, then if you want, we can keep it. We to record <laughs> We're over it. Money bags. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But that kind of it's almost like that experience that only the people in that perfect world has,
0: where you just press record and it's recording. Fluidity. I mean, I've been in, very seldom been in a studio, but that, yeah, there is, there's definitely, well, I've had like one good experience like that where I was in the studio and it's like, there was a man in this instance, a man uh, who was tasked with just, just do stuff. Can we have that into that into that? Yeah. Okay, cool. It does it. And it, it does help. It's true, but... I suppose, like if you're the master of your own domain, and that could be your laptop, then it's just as fast for you to throw things down. But um, there's certainly something to be said for the communal experience of being in a room together, and that is designed around that purpose. Definitely, the sound and, the, but I think it's also the the intent. It's like when you go to a studio, there's that. You're going. I mean, the Beatles were going because like, we've got to write a new album and perform it. I mean, the main thing is intent. I mean, I think of that like when I went to university and did, I did a degree that was basically like graphics, um, which I liked. You know, I like I like that's like it was like how to do like animation and visual graphics and stuff. And that's kind of what I was thinking I was going to have as a career. And somehow I'd, I, I seem to definitely not have done that uh, because i've definitely got a career in a different industry now but the best thing about university was having time that it just gave me time and a bit of focus and purpose to do a thing you know whereas otherwise i think that's the only i don't know there's like if you i was thinking about there's sean ruderman the techno guy um, from pittsburgh talks about how he worked his ass off for like all summer to get a synth, you know, he literally like busted, like flipped every hamburger going, did all like these things to get the machine. And it was so expensive, uh, but he did it and he got it. And he's like, and you can bet your ass. I rinsed that machine for every last like, like drop of creativity that I could squeeze. Cause yeah. I spent so much money on it. And I suppose, that's the only concern is that in the age of cheap gear and, you know, where there's no like, like, it sounds very elitist, but it's, I think there's a degree of truth that when you're heavily invested in something, you do work harder on it and you, you, there's more impetus to like get something from it. Having the commitment to learn something,
1: which I think is partly about the thing itself. So if you start trying to use something, and it doesn't repay you, it doesn't fit with the way you work, so you're really just pushing against it, then that's that makes it much harder to do that. And that's one of the interesting things about DIY, is I do think people have a little bit more commitment to something they've made themselves. They may also get hooked on making something themselves and just make more and more and more, which is definitely, definitely part of it as well. But I think, you know, like for me, with that easel that I've had to spend a lot of, time and effort making it work properly. I'm very kind of emotionally connected to that and I want to make sure that I, as you said, I I know it and I understand it and I learn it. And it's partly because I physically have had to read the schematic to work out how to make it work so there's bits of it that I I can understand. But there is that commitment which is quite different from, I fancy one of these it's kind of interesting and cool but I haven't quite had the patience to to dig into it and maybe I will, maybe I won't, and maybe I'll sell it again. But the reward you get from actually learning something. And it's, it's the same with modules. You know, when I when I see somebody saying, Oh, I don't get maths, it's really complicated and confusing. I don't understand it. You know, for me, I know that module so well, you know, and to me it doesn't seem particularly mm, complicated. I know it completely. I know the way I know how to use a pencil sharpener or a calculator or something. You completely know what it's doing, and if you wanted to do something, you can do it. It's very much on both sides, you know. It's on the, for me, it's the side of the person creating the instrument and the device to create something that you can learn. And that's where I think when you have something with, like, loads of modes, you've got to kind of remember, and you just can't do anything with it. And, it, and it, you, you literally have to learn like you're learning a, you know, learning vocabulary in school or something mm. and memorise things that feels like that's quite a big barrier to somebody that to, to, they have to overcome. You know, there are devices that are really complicated and have to be learned that clearly can get you into that flow state. So something like an NPC. you pick up an NPC, you can't just do it. You know, there's a, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of muscle memory to learn to get to do it. But when you see those incredible videos of people just it's like somebody touch typing, yeah. you know, as they're cutting the thing up and they're mapping it across the pads and they're changing the levels and doing all this thing. And clearly that's an incredibly well, it's incredibly successful interface that definitely works. It's It will have modes in it, it will have lots of different things in it that that aren't intuitive. So it's that, that kind of
0: interplay between the two sides of it. It feels like the key bit is that you are in all of this is that you see someone doing something that inspires you. I think it's, uh, I think that's, what's great about YouTube. Like if there was, yeah. like that is what I see as my role on, the, you know, in anything that I'm doing on some level, like the, you know, if you go, like oh, you know, the five whys or whatever, you know, I keep asking the question and why, 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 what, what do you get at the end of it? And I suppose to inspire people, like, Be it it through even like a gear demo of something that isn't something that someone intends to buy. Like the best thing, one of the best comments I saw was like someone, I can't remember what it was. Like it was like a module or some some micro freak or something like that, you know. And they were like, I really enjoyed this. and I'm not going to buy the thing. I'm not bothered about buying the thing, but I'm going to build a version of this in Bitwig's The Grid now you know it's like I'm able to take I took inspiration from what you taught me about the thing and I can apply it my own way and I think that's but um it is a great you know it's like one of the great things we can now just see these things and be inspired by Charles Cohen or um by you know someone playing a Stradivarius or like you can go and see like Rhapsody in Blue with Leonard Bernstein and you can just watch that like And i I watched that. There is an incredible rendition of Rhapsody in Blue. Like, literally brings tears to my eyes. And it's like, it's just there. And there's like big lectures with Bernstein talking about musical theory and playing the piano and stuff. It's all just there to see. And it's all there. I suppose it's just like half the battle now feels like curating it, you know. And do you have the discipline to push yourself through? And I suppose true passion, if that's what, you know, if you're really passionate about something, you will. I guess it's also like, it is, I think the tricky thing is like the whole um, practice, proper practice and the process of deliberate practice. The key is, the key word is deliberate. And I think it's, that's something I feel I was never taught because I think once you, re, the danger is that when you get a certain degree of proficiency that it becomes a circular thing where you're like well i'm good at these i have this repertoire of things that i've worked out how to do and yeah. then you don't stray beyond it and then that can be dangerous and you know i'm sort of i will do things like buy a yamaha tx16w and a circle on because if my hero richard james is deciding to like make music in that way i, I know that he's probably doing it in part because it's it's a challenge because the circle on is another good example of like an npc like device that is a complete dick when you (laughs) pick it up. It is just an absolute dick as we've talked about before. And it's actually, I was reading an interview with him and he says, um, he's like, I'm my own worst critic. Like I'm not, I'm not worried about anything that I see that people will write about my music because I've already thought of all of the things that you were going to say. There's really very little that you will be able to tell me about my music that I haven't already thought about. Um, which I thought was interesting because he's he's saying that from a perspective of saying, I'm always critical of what I'm not good at. And so I push myself in that direction. I push myself to get better at the thing that I'm... And he also said, um, regarding like equipment and making music, he's like, I'm not interested if I'm not learning something. Yeah. yeah. And that I was like, oh God, that's so annoyingly smart like you know i'm not interested in playing or making music if i'm not trying something new or teaching myself something or exploring a technique or some concept something that i'm unfamiliar with and that that is the the driving force and it's going to keep you fresh you know and it literally keeps you alive as well like learning learning a new thing i was reading this book about how literally to live longer do a new thing like every month do a new thing be it Try squash, or you know, take a dance class, or do it doesn't matter what it is; it's just got to be a new thing. And that the that process of like elasticity. Um, and then the other thing um before I forget, I was like, because it was a really good tip, is to do with like getting things done and the whole like you know the GTD process and stuff. I just thought it was very interesting in terms of achieving things. Obviously, everyone's you know. And a classic achievement issue in electronic music is completing music, for example. Yeah, A really interesting maxim or quote that someone had said was, motivation is kind of, it's not how it works. Like, I think you may think that you are motivated and so you complete things, but actually what makes you complete things is momentum. Like the process yeah, that's of having done something... Gives you this spark of joy that you want to add to a little bit. And that's how yeah. you build. It doesn't just it's it's like inspiration. Like people who say, Oh, you know, I'll wait for inspiration, I wait for inspiration to strike it. It's like it's bollocks in the extreme. Like the idea of waiting for inspiration isn't how. It's not how creative things are done, I don't think. I don't think you need to do that at all. I think if you think that, you're just going to waste a lot of time. What you need to do is just sit down and start doing stuff and it will happen. Like, if you like doing the thing enough, then it will happen. You know, you will come up with ideas that will spark ideas that then start momentum going. But momentum is the thing that will make you push on through. But it's you've got to that initial thing of, oh, well, I've got to give myself a deadline, I've got to finish something. But, but, but if you did that, I mean, I can't talk because I've done it, but um, I am aware, I'm aware of that feeling that once I've achieved something, it makes you then want to do a bit more. Absolutely, that. yeah. There was a, a concept that I like this year was um,
1: productivity dysmorphia, which is where people are, are completely unaware of the amount of productivity they do themselves. So somebody will look at themselves and feel they're failing to achieve anything. Mm. And yet, by any sensible criteria, by anyone else looking into it, they will see they are they are achieving a lot. Yeah, you're, you're essentially addicted to that sort of little rush of completing things. Mm. And so if you ever go off the ball at all and you're not completing something, you feel you're failing because you're doing three things a week rather than five things a yeah. week. Yeah, um, which is mad. And I, I, I had an interesting thing this year as well, where I there was a point, sort of, I don't know, was it? it was towards the end of the summer, maybe, where I was feeling quite sort of just uninspired. I didn't have like ideas. Like normally, I will have a bunch of things I'm specifically working on that need kind of completing, and that's fine; those are the things I'm doing. But you also want to have a lot of other things floating around that is what you want to do next. And often the things that you're distracted from doing the things you need to do because you've got an exciting thing. And I was just sort of not feeling much of that for whatever reason. And I I remember I'd been waiting for about, you know, all over the summer for this book to come out, which is this enormous book about David Tudor, the the kind of music instrument maker and piano player and, and kind of general performer really isn't he dude yeah finally this book arrived and it's like this thick it's called reminded by the instruments by Yu nakai it's a biography of him but it's one of the things with him is he never really did interviews he never really expressed himself about what he was up to and he would make this incredibly kind of obtuse music and never really explained it or said what what he was doing and the, the author was saying he, you know, had always considered this guy kind of a closed book because you couldn't really see how to get into it. And he was in the one of the archives, I think, doing looking for something else. And he realised that Tudor left behind this enormous archive of not just every book he owned, but like a receipt from somewhere with some numbers scrolled on the back of it. That's in the archive. Everything he ever wrote down basically, or every record he had, every every <laughs> magazine he bought was in the archive, along with all of his instruments, which were all handmade weird boxes <laughs> with like not even inputs and outputs. Quite often the inputs and outputs are the same. You just connected into things. Uh, but he realized that by looking at the archive he could start to unpick and un- understand what his motivations were and what he was up to and what he was thinking, what he was trying to achieve. And basically that's what he does. So he writes this enormous book where it will, you know, tell his whole life story in enormous detail, understanding how he was analysing the scores he was playing and this kind of stuff. And then he gets to the... When he starts making instruments and it will have you know five or six pages on this little box that he's made and what he was trying to do with it and i just started reading this and immediately well not immediately it's a long book (laughs) i've I've read about a third of it so far but it immediately just triggers off all of these kind of ideas and these things these kind of they'll describe this circuit and you'll be like i can't i can't understand what this circuit will be and it will have six components in it so i'll come out to the to here And I will literally just kind of make one. Like, I was really interested in... I'm always really interested in in phase and how phase relates to feedback, because obviously it's the difference between big feedback and no feedback, and that was what David Tudor was using it for. So there's a circuit in there for just this really, really primitive, like, one-knob phase shifter that can shift through phase. So I'll, like, okay, literally bring the book out, make it somewhere in the, the rack there... And then you play with it, and you realize, well, there's a reason why phases generally are quite a lot more complicated than that, and they've got like sixteen poles, and they they track exponentially, so they track across the whole range of audio rather than linearly and all this stuff. but that that process of reading, making something, playing with it, and then just having this much greater understanding of why something is more complicated. And immediately after that, I was like, okay, now ideas are coming and sure. I'm kind of, you know, waking up early in the morning and writing something down and thinking, oh, what can I do with this? And then the other thing that that does unblock it is when you have those new platforms. So that playing with those music easel cards, it gets you from sort of idea to something you know is working or not working within two or three hours rather than what well, can take two or three years, which is actually completing one of the sort of projects and the things I'm designing sometimes. Well, sometimes
0: they're simpler than that. It sounds like you needed a more satisfying task because, I mean, it seems like you've yeah. got a lot of projects that just take a long time and it's only you to work on them. Like, you need you need to build the momentum, right? Like, you need to have, <laughs> yeah. like, the sort of small wins. I think also it yeah. feels like you're talking a bit about the need for rest. You know, and that's, that's another thing that I've read, you know, read about. It's like literally rest, like you need to stop. And it's it's wrong to think of rest as a kind of um, a skive off work or a sort of escape from work. It's actually arguably integral to work because to work effectively, you need to be well rested. And that sort of, I mean, that literally means from sleep to holidays to time yeah. away from the thing it's because it's also like, you know, it's like if you there's another level, which is that if you're going to make things that, I mean, we're not doing, that I'm not certainly, but you know, if you want things that make art that comments on life, well then you have to have lived a life. <laughs> you need to do something more <laughs> yeah. than just be in your room. You actually have to go and live your life. But I think it's also, you just need to, like, it's okay to just take a break and do nothing. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm a great
1: believer in the kind of two, two sort of mental states of processing things. So the in um, the sort of two systems in um, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking, Fast and Slow, mm. with the idea that you've got your essentially you've got your conscious brain that is working all day that you know about it, but I certainly believe that you you're posting things into your unconscious brain to go and ponder mm-hmm. and probably it's, it seems to be stronger at pondering when you're getting plenty of sleep or you're getting some exercise or you're you know doing something else and then this miraculous thing where it then posts you the
0: answer back i mean what uh, you're describing the, is is literally what happens apparently I mean, i've been also reading these books where it's like that is like there really truly is a consciousness of unconscious and it, it's exactly completely. What like.
1: And that's how, and I now, I, I just now very, now I'm very kind of at peace with that. So I'm very much under, one of the things is I, I definitely know if you kind of throw a bunch of ideas at me, I'm not necessarily going to come with anything particularly clever on the spot immediately. You know, you can respond in some way using your, your conscious experience or your, you know, that's like something we did previously. Oh, that could work. We could do it like this. But, Often, to get an interesting, useful answer, it needs to percolate for yeah. for days or weeks or months. And then you'll be walking down the street and you'll go, okay. And it, Particularly, I, I think I notice it much more with the sort of... I, like, I remember after spending a lot of time looking at really, really small things, trying to make various really small things, I was like... I suddenly was, was riding a bike down the road and I was like, no, that is wrong, I need to make something big. <laughs> and that's when that kind of control module with just mm. big knobs on it. And that emerged pretty much fully formed. And I I can't say that I sat there and thought, it wasn't me, it wasn't the conscious side thinking of that, it's just he it, it kind of, the unconscious was obviously pondering that and then was like, this is the answer, this is how you should do it. And, you know, you receive it and that's, you know, good.
0: The the book I read literally talks about the fact that when you are physically moving, your body, your mind thinks differently to when you're sat still. And so that physically moving really helps the thought process. There's a reason why, you know, um, philosophers go for walks and there's, you know, there are famous people who've like you know, they build time, they specifically build time into their schedules to go on walks or go out and and do what appear like mundane activities, because they're absolutely, they've realised that it's an integral part of the thought process. And it's, I think it's the problem of the modern age, especially also like, you know, both being in an office and working from home, where it's It's considered sort of semi-taboo to like go out for a walk. You know, you're supposed to be, we're supposed to be always connected, we're supposed to be on, you know. In a sense, it feels like you're being denied the option of going for a walk and being disconnected to just be with your own thoughts. Um, And it's the thing that I have the most fear about with social media is this quote that, I read on social media somewhere which is that social media takes the time that you would have had to just be alone with your own thoughts and it just yeah. rams it with the thoughts of other people. You know, it's thinking time that you should be using and you're you're could be allowing your subconscious to chew over as you do nothing. And yet you sabotage it by just with distraction, which is a terrifying yeah. thought. Like it's Potentially it's making us less – it's harming our concentration, potentially, but it's also potentially harming the quality of the ideas that we can come up with through its sort of inane hostage-taking of our thought process. Although maybe if it is truly subconscious, then it's happening below the surface anyway. But, you know, it seems that those revelations, they happen after the walk, you know. And the key thing with the walk is that the walk happens – in nature as well, a lot of the time. And part of the reason for that is because you don't have to think carefully about your environment. And from a standpoint that when you're in a city, you have to be watching for the bus, checking to the thing. I'm stepping off the pavement. I'm going through there. That All that stuff is happening. But in, in a wood, you don't think any of that stuff. You yeah, just but go, that's all about what cows, cows to, what bulls. <laughs> what well, other yeah foxes uh, you've got bears days. where you are probably haven't you bloody hell it's not that bad if you are i mean yeah if you're in a field with a bull that's a that's fairly singular but i think you're probably your mind's working out some amazing new module as you're like vaulting the fence you know so when you stop in you panty like oh <gasps> yeah, that's, yeah that's true the, the, the oxygen, torus, yeah. the torus. <laughs> that's what it's like.
1: so um yeah. i don't know if i've fully interviewed you
0: well i think you're doing a great job
1: so you've talked about you you got into doing music yeah you went up to university but as long as i've known you you have been somehow working in the music music gear industry yeah
0: and how did how did that start how did you get into that um that started because when i moved to the big bad city of london not middlesbrough um, i had i was like i need to get a job. And I need to establish myself. And so I was like, right, what am I going to do? And while I did sort of make some limited effort to try and do some work in like the, you know, animation industry and like film industry and stuff it really was very half-hearted. And I was like, a quicker win will be there's this shop called Turnkey. And <laughs> Turnkey is like, I know it, I bought stuff from there. I could work there. I could build up one of those people that sells gear. So I'll go and work there. And so I went for an interview and got the interview. And so I went to work at Turnkey and I was doing telesales. So I was on, if you oh, okay. ever like, where Chipotle is on yeah. Charing Cross Road, yeah. that's what used to be Turnkey. And Turnkey, interestingly, the building that was Turnkey was a music shop called Selma's. Before and the Beatles bought guitars from yes. Selmers um, back in the day. So it was it had been a music shop for a long time and it Selma's went out of business and it, it turned into like a computer shop and then it turned into Turnkey. And basically Turnkey had the shop and it was kind of a, you know, the were I don't think there were really I mean there was Macaris and there's sort of the more trad music shops down Charing Cross Road, but but what was good about Turnkey was full of like gear, so it was like more. There was more it was huge, wasn't though. it? It was, yeah, yeah, and it had like the the had the sort of street level, and then there were stairs down, and downstairs it had a um, synth museum. It had a synth museum, um, which was amazing, and and in that synth museum, which we never allowed to touch, there were like they had a system one hundred M. What else did they have? They certainly had VCS three. Did they? Definitely. When yeah, I, I was there, much. they were basically decommissioning the synth museum, and I got to. I owned a Schweman S1, um, which I bought with more, with the money that my grandparents had given me to buy a car, uh, instead bought a synthesizer, uh, which is, I mean, a fair, fair disappointment. It would have
1: been a very good investment if you still had it.
0: Yes, it would. It really would. They were, what, about two two
1: grand were there? They're now about six grand. Yeah, hindsight is 20, 20 but
0: I've done all right. I'm fine. I've got enough synthesizers now. <laughs> so, but, what?
1: tell. Tell me about working Tell me about working in Turnkey because it was such a sort of legendary place. Were you, so you were on the phones, you weren't yeah. in the store. I would. Uh, I what, sp- what, so, what people rang up and said, I can't get my
0: Akai to work.
1: Do you yeah, fix it? Yeah, I want to make This some... is Phil Collins. I can't get this to work. Yeah, yeah. Well, Can you come around and fix I it? I do
0: remember I spoke to, you. I was trying to think, who did I? There were two famous people I remember talking to, and one was um, Howard Goodall howard goodall, goodall. Oh, howard yes. goodall i sold like some stuff to howard goodall um but point was yeah you were the main thing wasn't talking to celebrities it was just talking to people just phoning up saying i want to make music i want to do this um i've yeah. got some money i want to do that like what do i need you know and so it was oh, a wow. process of like you know literally pick up the phone hi how you doing uh, yeah yeah good i'm you know i'm looking to do this and this cool cool like and then you just have a conversation with that person about what do you want to do? And then you go, all right, so let me have a think. Well, you want to do some music, all right? You've got like 150 quid, you need an audio interface and a MIDI keyboard, you know, or like, and so, and you'd be furiously Googling these things as you're talking on the headset, like pulling ideas up. Like, okay, 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 What go, what have I got in stock and what's available and, you know, What's good, you know, because it doesn't behove you. Know, sort of a, yeah. You know, I think there's that thing of being a salesperson. It's that sense that you know you're innately out to hoodwink someone and you know rip them off and fly into the sunset. But and the reality is that we don't live in like the 1940s (laughs) snake oil salesman although if some of the hi-fi stuff that i've seen regarding like cables that have got like aligned electrons does feel a little bit close to the bone quite sure how they get away with that but okay fine but that is not really the case because people can return things very easily (laughs) so you were like a doctor you're prescribing them stuff exactly so someone comes to you say, i've got this pain what you know? What is the bit of gear that will solve that pain? And and you, it's the onus is to sell them the thing that they want because they'll return it if it's not. And you know, and did
1: you ever get feedback from
0: them knowing that you'd done a good job on it? You would get people who come back and like the best salespeople would have like customers would gravitate to them. It's like and that's something that you read a lot about when you read about sales. Like there are people who are they consistent. It's like poker. You know, you yeah. think poker is a game of chance, but why does, why do the same people finish every, Yeah, you know, it's like the roundest quote, like why do the same people finish like head of the table of the World Series of Poker every year? It's clearly yeah. there is a skill element to this. And the best people were consistently the best and would consistently sell the most stuff, um, And people would come back to them to buy. You know, it's sort of come back to them. Like, they're my person. I like talking to them about gear. I'm happy. I want to talk to them. So it's a real, like, it's a real art and skill. And actually that David Vancouvering thing, he talks about selling. He's like, I liked selling. I enjoyed it. I did enjoy selling. And I think about that as well. And I think I feel a sort of kinship with him in the sense of like, I am a salesman. Like, that is my role. When I make a demo of a piece of equipment, I'm selling it in a video yeah. form. That is exactly... I, I am 100%, 200% aware that that is what's happening and that's the function of the video, is to make you want the thing. Like, and it does Do that. people misunderstand that and think that you're reviewing it in some Yes, way? they do. and And that is problematic. Like, it's something that should be... I've thought about directly addressing because... People need to understand that it's not a review. And there is a difference on a deep seated and fundamental level between a review and a demo. But what I try and do is literally put the word demo either in the title of the video or in the first line of the thing to be clear. And then the other thing is just put like the paid partnership thing on. Just be like, you need to understand that like, I mean, paid partnership on YouTube doesn't necessarily mean that you got paid to make a video, but you might have received the gear for free, which counts as a form of payment. Um, And so, you know, I will put that on just to be like, I got this, you know, either I did get it for free or in some cases I am getting paid to make a demonstration of the thing just as any demonstrator would get paid, yeah. you know, hopefully, to, get, to do a demonstration with it. And, it, you know, um, but that's, uh, you're right, people do misconstrue as how great review. Uh, you know, you don't want to sort of go, I think I need to <laughs> take a demonstration. No, it's, it's terrible. I just didn't <laughs> mention that bit. But I suppose on one level, what I hope people realise is that there's many, there's a couple of things to this. Understand that there will, you will never find a video that has me in it where I am demonstrating a piece of equipment that I don't think is good or I would use or I don't actually like. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There are things that I don't own or I may not choose to, but that does not mean preclude me from making a demo of it and explaining what's good about this way of so working. So how
1: does that work? When somebody rings you up and says, we've got the new so-and-so. qwerty 8
0: 9
1: We're going to send this thing over to you. Do you then say,
0: yeah, thanks for sending that over. I didn't really like it. Have it back.
1: Or the, how, did, how, did it, how does it really, work? Basically, it
0: doesn't really come to that point in most cases because I already have, like, having like worked with music equipment for 20-something years, I usually have a good idea. I'm like, mm, this isn't for me. Um, and so the simple answer is, yeah, like send it over if I'm in any doubt, like, and then, but it's, you basically don't – the simple answer is I wouldn't be making something, a video on something that I wasn't interested in or wanted to own so in some way or so. So you're interested in it and
1: you're enthused in it and you're trying to bring across that enthusiasm. And presumably you're trying to understand
0: who this is for as well. Yeah. So it's like – and that's kind of the point with with any piece of gear, even if it's something that I wouldn't choose to buy myself or own, part of the fun and interest is to understand what is valuable – and, that, yeah. you know, case in point is like Make Noise Morphogene. Like, yeah. I don't own, I didn't own the unit that I had. I only borrowed it for the purposes of making the video. But that doesn't invalidate my thoughts and the things that I was talking about, because what I'm doing in these videos is trying to inspire and create um, a sense of the possibilities that that particular thing makes available. And yeah. what I'm interested in uh, isn't necessarily what you're interested in. But the point is that the video stands alone. Like the video, in a sense, although I make it, it's separate to me because it's it's a video where someone has made the effort to try and understand what's great about this particular thing and yeah. communicate that in a way that will hopefully inspire you. Um, and I mean, the... I guess the thing is, like, when you think of a review, like, what a review would also do, because it would probably do some of that, and most reviews do, um, but what it would also do is it would have kind of, like, a part where you say, oh, and here's what's not good about it or bad about it, you know, or this broke, or you know. And the thing is, uh, this is something that people need to understand, is that music gear doesn't really, isn't bad like, anymore, like, if that makes sense. There is really no music gear that you can buy unless it's, like, no brand sort of weird stuff on, like, Amazon that is, like, bad anymore. Like, everything is really well made. And that doesn't mean to say that there aren't things that break because everything breaks at some point or there are always a percentage of things that will break no matter whether the brand is rolls royce or skoda you know it's there're always things that break you know so that is always a factor but the percentage is larger and smaller for different brands but there's always a you know it's within a sort yeah. of reasonable window and so everything's good is it also the
1: the person who designed it made a bunch of decisions deliberately yeah And they were making decisions about how they imagined somebody would use it or about a particular price they wanted to achieve or the constraints they had because of the moment, because of what chips were available. Uh, And they made those decisions. And I think what's really important, or what's really interesting, is if you're able to understand those decisions and explain them to people and enthuse about why they've done that, it's a, it's a thing that the designer themselves might not be as good at doing. Mm. Like I'm thinking of pieces of music gear that are sort of notoriously bad. <laughs> well, Which anyway I to think, the think bad of gear? is thing, things
0: like the was it the Akai the Timber? Oh sorry, ah, the um Timberwolf. The Timberwolf. Timberwolf. Timber, yeah, well, yeah. you see, this is a great this is a great example. I mean. I will say that the, the occasion I t- tried the... Um, it was the Wolf, the white keyboard. Yeah. It did not work very well. Like the one that I tried, I tried at Nam, and it really didn't feel in tune and it felt like a lot of the knobs didn't do a lot of things. And I've never made a video about it, nor have I asked me to, you know, exactly. But like the rhythm wolf, like the, is that the drum, the drum machine? I think that was the drum machine. The really, the really interesting thing about that machine, which when you try it, you may say, oh, this sounds weird. This doesn't sound right. You know, that's an odd sound. But a friend of mine said, like, I met the guy. Um, behind it he's like you know yeah. dan the the guy who appeared in some of the videos and like he's the guy behind it he says he's an industrial guy and it's an industrial sounding drum machine and if you listen to like Ebb and those bands yeah then you will hear why it sounds like because what it isn't is a techno machine and everyone's thinking yeah. like is 808 or a 909 those are your only two numbers that it can be um it's not those things, and I suppose. But in it's that, yeah. So in, that's in, so
1: interesting, isn't it? Because it's the it's the things that it's also the thing where over time we will you know like that's a weird sounding drum machine. The DF fifty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know that's a that's a weird sounding thing. The QI seventy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> These are all weird things that if you were looking at them and saying, "What well, is this? The best it can be at the time." for the price, for whatever they had in mind doing it.
0: Yeah. Sure. It's it's a great
1: question, yeah. And then you obviously get the classic 303 question, which if you were reviewing the 303 for the task that it was presented, it might not have been a
0: terribly effective. Yeah. Well, maybe it was. I mean, it was a pretty cheap price. It was quite sophisticated. It's. I think you can argue that everyone at Roland... They, dis- they made conscious decisions about all of the places that all of the settings on a 303 could go. Yeah. And I, you know, I think in my heart of hearts that they are well aware or were well aware of how funky it sounded when it was pushed into those funny settings. And you know, as a designer, it's n- yeah. no, none of the settings, that the, the ranges that are available, the very limits of them, are not arrived at by accident. They're tested and checked and... You make a, there's a point where you make a conscious decision that the extent to which that this value applies and which all is and where that one is, is you have control over it and you don't just arrive at it arbitrarily. You, you, you do, but I think there's an interesting...
1: Because there there is, you know, there's an interesting thing, I think it was uh, Emily from Mutables talks about, there's something about identifying the sweet spots. And there's something like in that, in the you know, a Dave Smith instrument, you you can see that an awful lot of work has gone into it and it is kind of correct mm. in those things. You can see that in a, in a bookler instrument, the approach is very, very different. And there are lots of points in an instrument that are not sweet. There are lots of ways you can have the thing set where it doesn't make any noises. There are things where you think more work could have gone in to get broader sweet spots mm. <laughs> uh, and more, you know, if that was what somebody was going for. But that, I think, also is probably thinking more about the much more boutique, almost nearer the DIY world than what, in many ways, you're talking about. Like, as you say, a Roland, a Make Noise, a uh, uh, Mutable Instruments are unlikely to produce instruments that haven't had that level of... Effort and thought and polish gone into them to get the sweet spots, you know, as large as they can be. And it may be that they've done, by doing that, they've polished off some of the quirkier things.
0: Yeah, maybe. There's definitely, I mean, I just think, I mean, returning to that idea is that the things that I would demonstrate and the difference between like a review and a demo is like that fact that I, you know, the difference is that a demo doesn't have that stage where you say, well, it's not very good at this or it, it, you know, It doesn't do that or it's expensive or it only does this one thing, you know, that I'm showing you here. And I suppose, like, there's always a part of me that thinks subconsciously or unconsciously. I'm just like, you surely are all aware that, like, what it doesn't do should be self-evident, you know. If you can read a spec sheet, you should know what this is capable of and what is not capable of. And the demo is going to show its strengths. You know, it's going to show it doing the thing it's absolutely the best at. You know, if I'm not showing a certain thing, then it, maybe it can't do that. But there's nothing but that wrong. does. I
1: mean, if you if you think of really good review, like if you think of a sound on sound review, is generally a well constructed, well understood review done by somebody who's seen a lot of things like this before. For example, they would say this is unusually expensive. Mm. But I would imagine when you're reviewing something, you will also be quite conscious of that, and you will be when, you, when you're presenting something, yeah. you
0: will be explaining
1: why this is expensive, and you will be you will be you will be addressing that in a way, wouldn't
0: you? I actually don't like. I don't think I mentioned cost like hardly at all in any of the things. I just think it's not really for me to say because yeah. it's not the cost of something is relative. You know, if you're earning a lot of money then 500 pounds for a, a you know a 101 inspired synthesizer module is not excessive money because it's cheaper than an actual 101 which is probably 800 quid. So and that's true. I've made like demos of things that are quite expensive um but then that term expensive I think it's just very misleading. And there's one of your questions that I'm going to cherry pick here, which is misapprehensions that you've heard about the music yeah. industry. And I think that that one of the misapprehensions is like that gear is more, is expensive. And, um, I really don't think it is. Um, yeah. I don't, I can say that like, you know, the people who work, selling gear in the music technology industry don't make a fortune, um, unless they're on a strong commission structure, like, and even then they don't make a fortune. There's a real misunderstanding about the, and I've talked about it on this podcast and in other videos, like how, you know, people need to understand that like the cost of a device is not just the cost of the bill of materials. There's, There's lots of other overheads and factors. And, you know, in the case of the, you know, the retailer, then, and distributors as well that are sometimes in the path. And there are other agents that take a cut and that, that does change the cost of things because, of course, there has to be margin built in. Um, But none of these, um, none of these people are ripping you off, I think is the sort of, is what I would say like really. I would not, f- I can assure people that no one is kind of like, you know, cackling, like, you know, when the door is shut saying like, amazing, like it costs three pounds to make this poly synth and we sell it for two grand. It's like, it's just unfortunately not the case. And, um, you know. It's actually quite a hard industry to survive in, and that's why you get a lot of, especially like you know, niches and niches. You get modular brands that are going out of business, and you get there isn't um, there isn't an Apple or a Tesla of music gear. No, but there are. I mean, there are big corporations um,
1: that are not ones that are not ones that are spectacularly well valued and enormously growing i mean that's no. the thing it's not yeah it's, yeah, not, it's not like, like no a,
0: one's growing exponentially
1: it's a kind there's of no vcs piling in to put in tens of millions of pounds into well, somebody are, making there are, but well not, there was one in london <laughs> yes but, yeah, but,
0: but those aren't common is the point and um but that's because um i think people grow, another misapprehension is the like the gross misunderstanding of the size of the industry and how small it really is comparatively and how that so really affects... So what's an affect- example of that? Well, like, we've talked about the fact that, like, like I mean, I've mentioned this before and I mentioned this in a video, but like the cost of making a case, making cases for URAC and but then comparing that because our frame of reference is what we pay for a cupboard in Ikea. You know, an yeah. Ikea Rast which you put your shoes on, which happens to also be 19 inches wide, you know, can be made into a modular case. And you could make a case make a case that, well, that's only 20 quid. So how on earth can you charge me £300, you know? But then, I mean, I recently, uh, I remember I mentioned to you last, was it last year about this whole um, DIY bar top arcade project um, oh, yes. Do yes. you remember that? How's that going? Yeah, great. I finished one a year later um, with the impending doom of this Christmas. I was like, I have to finish this for my brother because I was making one for my brother. And so I was like, I've got to finish it because it's Christmas again. So literally that was his secret Santa from the last year. And I'm giving it to him this year, but let's not worry about that. Um, <laughs> just like the amount of work that goes into every curve and every section and every bit has to be considered and prepared for and thought for and planned for and checked and drawn and s- like punched and sanded and connected and finished and then sanded and waxed and sanded and waxed Yeah, and then and it all has to be constructed and put together and it takes one you know it took one or t- really two people um, <laughs> Two full days, it seemed like pretty much the equivalent time of about two full days to put together what I foolishly was just like, well, it's just two sides with some planks that support the center sections just to be the surfaces. And it took a long time to do. And But the part of the reason why it took a long time to do is because you can't just be thrown together arbitrarily. It's exposed, and you will be seeing it. You need to make sure yeah. it's precise and it's not overlapping You know, it needs to be done right, and that means every stage needs to be considered. There's a reason why no one's come out with the fifty pound case. Like everyone thinks, yeah. well, why is it not fifty quid? Well, do you note know that no one has done it, and it's not a, it's not a. Even Clever Behringer. Other, it. Exactly. Even Behringer couldn't do it for fifty quid. We do seem to have this conversation every time, don't we? We do, yeah. No, but it's <laughs> it is it's definitely a misapprehension. Now, I think it, it 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 affects everything because anytime some new piece of gear comes out, the ultimate question is like, can I afford it? Do I you know and I don't know. It's just I suppose I would just assure people that like no one's like you're not being hoodwinked like by any of this gear and i think it's all it's it's generally i just think it's all a lot better than people give it credit for it's like I, it's a lot of it's very well things well-made. that are expensive things that are
1: expensive generally they would like to make them for less money absolutely but they can't and if you get you know like those monitors are proper nice expensive monitors made out of enormous slabs of cast aluminium I've been to the in factory Finland.
0: there in Finland I've been there I've been I've been naked in a in a sauna there <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that question of how big these so like a company like Genelec how is that like 10,000 people is it 20 people what sort of what no. what, what does it look like when I you encounter companies when like you
0: that? go to Genelec it's in a beautiful wood you drive through like these little these straight roads with like trees on the other side and then you come into a you you drive down a little driveway and then you just come to this in the woods there's literally a wood and there's a lake and there's this sort of warehousey building with little offices attached to it and it's just like it's just really like an office it's just really nice and the people are i mean they're very they've like there's a tremendous kind of Consideration is the best way I can put it. Like the Finnish sort of like mindset is to be very thoughtful and considered and do things for the right reasons. And that means environmental things at uh, uh, that company from being on the inside and, and actually going and talking to them and seeing it. It's not something I think a lot of companies, it's a kind of thing where you're like, well, we've got to have a policy of we've got to save. We want to save the planet whilst pumping loads of stuff in, you know. But I mean, Genelec actually made a speaker out of like recycled material but I don't think anyone really remembers, but these M series were literally made from material that was, like, organic that was pumped into, like, shapes. There are people who genuinely care about the things that they are making. A, that they're good, good products, and that they they last. And in a way, I could make a, you know, the fact that you've got... How long have you had those 80s, 20s, I I bought them
1: secondhand about three years ago, and I paid what I paid because I was certain that it I wasn't going to need other ones. Yeah. And I, I imagine the cost of ownership will be like about 100 quid if I, for whatever reason, if I decide to sell them in two or three years, which I'm not planning to.
0: I was selling 80, 10s, 20s, and 30s. Well, actually, eight 20s, 30s, and 40s were at yeah. turnkey in... Yes. Two thousand and six when I was there and it's two thousand and twenty two and I mean this is obviously a model two or something. Well yeah, they are like model two the So is. there is like an A B C D and really, yeah. all that changes is just the the like power consumption, electronics. They change stuff to do with the way that the power switch works to make it more power efficient. You know things like yeah. that, so that it was, it had less current draw. Things like that, yeah. and, and that's all that they've changed. And it's yeah. uh, the thing that I, the way I think about it is it's a bit like a as a weird analogy, but they're like guns. Like a gun, there's a reason. Like the Colt nine eleven is nineteen eleven. Is because it was made in nineteen eleven, and it still fires like lead bullet, a bullet of lead, really fast in the direction it's pointed, just as well now as it did then. And you know, at the end of the day, if the bullet fires lead very fast in the right direction, then that's or the gun does, then that's that's a gun doing its doing just as good a job now as it was, you know, a hundred. Eleven years ago, but I mean, like the, I'm not
1: completely the, happy with your gun metaphor, but I do understand. <laughs>
0: think of another one, which is just that <laughs> they were really good speakers then, and I suppose what is a credit to GenLEC is that they don't just they don't have planned obsolescence, where it's no, like you really know that we have a new model every year. It's like they do have new models, but when there's a there's a new technology like DSP you know or better power consumption specs things that they can improve like they auto yeah. power off like the the newer ones and they'll auto power themselves back on when these do that yeah my ones do that they when you turn the sound on they go and they yeah, come they back come to, to life. life and that's yeah. cuz they're they're conserving energy you know yeah. and um and yeah like yeah they that's a good example of like these companies are not like shysters that are like trying to you con you out of and I, maybe i'm it's just a sort of bad assumption that people think that but i just think there's this sense that like wow they're trying to rip us off and it's really not like and
1: i wonder, yeah and i wonder if maybe that's a that's a sort of
0: because they are a very
1: premium company it's a bit like us going oh companies are great i mean we went to see aston martin and they're lovely yeah uh i wonder if it you know and and actually i think one of the things is that the You know, the vast, vast majority of people who are trying to make a living in this business are in it because they're interested in it. So if you end up working for Motu, or you work for Sequential, or you work for Sennheiser, it's not because you can't get a job somewhere else. It's because you're into this. And so when I I did a project in the fashion industry, it was exactly the same. If you're an accountant at Prada, pretty good chances because you're interested in Prada. It's not just that you happen to be in Milan and you need a job. Um, it, you know, and that that means you get a certain type of person, a certain type of commitment in those kind of organisations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Certainly when I worked in 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 media companies, it was people tended to be working in media companies because
0: they wanted to work in media companies. Um, and I'm sure with music it's even, even more so. It is. All of the people that I worked with at Turnkey and beyond are either actively making music or love music in some way or shape or form, like, it's true. Like, you don't, why would you apply to those places if you weren't in some way interested in in them? And that's true of, like, all the companies. These aren't people that are just, aren't using it. Like, a good example is, like, Archeria, like, um, Sebastian Rochard, who's, like, one of the product managers there. Like, I knew him, I got to know him just as he was, like, basically doing like a year's like internship with them. And he's now like a designing products and there's like, uh, you know, designing some of the, the best stuff that they're doing, you know, it's like amazing. And he's just a enthusiastic, geeky music making guy. And you can just, we can sit in a bar and just bang on about gear endlessly. And it's of course, those are those, those are the people. It's like, they're not, you know, it's not come out a sort of design school, and you know, will go off and design anything else. He's deeply passionate about music equipment specifically, and that's what he's you know signed up to 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 design. And it's um, yeah. well,
1: it's a it's a good luck that that we have in this industry that there is quite a crossover as well. So that's why you have your teenage engineerings and people like that. Is yeah, that's because true. you tend to you do tend to find you know talented, creative people, creative people this is an area they want to work in. Some of them are really into watches, some of them are really into cars, some of them are into music gear. And some of them, you know, design supermarket packaging, which I'm sure if you get into it, is something you're passionate about in itself. But I think there is definitely that sort of... And again, that's where people will actually be working for much less than... They're worth. Yeah, that's know, That was I, I'm sure that was what happened with, um, even with teenage engineering, the making a, a very expensive device that then they figured out actually they weren't making any money on, so they made it more expensive. Mm. And people are like, why is it so expensive? And open the thing
0: up and you can see. Yeah, it's not (laughs) like they would just increase the price of the OP1 for fun, like, or even necessarily, you know, I mean, they're doing it for profit in the sense that they have to keep the lights on. But they're not just doing it like out of greed. Like you just wouldn't. That's not why you would do things. The other approach is
1: there's a very standard approach when that happens, which is you work out to make it cheaper. So they could easily have said, "Tell you what, instead of having the thing in a kind of milled aluminium tray, let's have it in a milled plastic tray, and put some weights in the corner so it feels the same." <laughs> yeah, that would be a classic way to yeah. do it. Um, but they. They presumably didn't do that.
0: So. The, I was reading an article that was talking about the name for this in supermarkets where they um they shrink the amount a quantity of a product but they keep the price the same. And it's the table was a classic. Yeah. Um and <laughs> The Brexit uh, Toblerone where it just shrank. Unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. Like you shrink the size because it's it it's hard to discern. Like it's easy to yeah. overlook. But actually, the product has shrunk, you know, paying the same amount of money, so it's gone up in price. Definitely, I mean, there is the thing that's happening at the moment where a lot of things are going up in price because of chip shortages and parts. Yeah. They will absorb a certain degree of margin so it's just like, this isn't sustainable. And it's like, yeah. I think again of that whole David Vancouvering, Vancouvering, and he says how, he said, actually, that was the follow-on quote to the thing he was saying about being a salesman. He's like, I liked selling. He says, and the thing is, like... You needed salespeople because if you didn't sell the thing, then Bob Moog would be out of a job and you don't have any more As Moog. they all have been. Yeah. Well, I mean, the joke is, of course, Bob didn't sell the company. He did go out of business. But yeah, um, but it, it, what he's saying is true. Like, at the end of the day, the thing has to be sold. Otherwise, you can't have the next thing. Yeah because companies will go out of business. So you need salespeople, which is, I mean, you know, and I do genuinely think that, you know, it's to support what's good about inspiring people and bringing more people in is it enriches the, it enriches it. And it makes this pool of limited customers slightly wider and larger. And that can lead to us having, you know, cheaper gear eventually, because of economies yeah, of scale. Yeah, scale and that. does. And that's, that's one of the things we talked about before, where it's like the misapprehension of not understanding how small it is. Well, if we can grow it, then things can come down. But they're already, I mean, some of these things are dirt cheap. I think the other thing, misapprehension I thought about, which irks me, is when people complain that and a thing doesn't do a thing. Why doesn't it just do that? Like, why didn't you have, you know... And, and I mean, there's lots of answers to that. And one is to say, well, you know, it's cost and you don't understand that adding a knob is not that simple and software, it's complicated. You can break something by adding something. But I think the thing that makes me sort of shake my head at it is just, like, this idea of, are you limited in your ability to make music, sir or madam? (laughs) Um, Like, can you really, with a straight face, say that you are being held back by technology in any truly meaningful fashion, that that feature being missed off was the difference between you being able to write music effectively and that device being worthful or worthless. But I think, I think also, it's even more than that, I think
1: for the designer, I think their intention should be to make something as simple as possible. Yes. But not more simple. Not too simple. Yeah. So there is all, but it's it's very it's incredibly easy to look at something and see what else it could do to add features, to add ideas, to add budget. That's that's fine. The challenge is is going the other way. So like that, the mini drive. This one Twenty with pounds a worth red, red, with mini drive. Yeah, it's got a weird red light on it. Oh wow! Um, that is as simple as anything I've ever made. You, you know, it could be substantially simpler. It could just have one input and one output, so you can patch feedback loops. It could have um, uh, the two outputs at different levels, so you've got a higher and lower input. That could just be not that. There's a range of things within it that could be simplified. What I've tried to do is make it as simple as it possibly can be and not simpler. That's where somebody looking at something and saying, well, why can't it do this and this and this? Is ignoring the cost of that, not in terms of bits and making it, but in terms of how simple something is to be used and how easy it is to be understood and how quick it is to be learned and that mm. sort of cognitive cost on things. Yeah. Particularly that's true. when you've got digital instruments and digital or, or instruments with digital brains in them, that's where you get into that universe of kind of modes and. And, oh, I've worked out how I can add 16 features to this thing because if you hold this key and this key when you start it up, you get an entirely new universe of it. And I think the discipline to not do that is what makes the difference between something that is enjoyable to use and, mm. and to learn and to... is instrument and something that is is not. You know, that's the way I see it. When you When you see instruments where people have taken that discipline or when you say again with most sensible instruments like something like the um volker fm which is taking a very very complicated instrument and absolutely working out how simple can you make it but not too simple the simple as you make it is you literally have a knob and an up up and down button and a slider and there is, a within that interface, you can change every single variable. You can change in a DX7 from the front panel of it. And it's kind of all right. I've done it occasionally using it, but it's not the easiest thing to do. Or actually, in a DX7 itself has got 160-odd controls in it, variables, and it's got, what, 16 buttons, 32 buttons maybe. So you have to... each button does three things. So it's just you know, even within the limitations of its its thing, it's
0: it could be a lot simpler. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to interject with a, an evil thought that you've just given me, which is like, I'd love to see someone make a worse interface, like for the for the DX7. What's the worst interface that you could possibly make for the DX7? Like,
1: well, it would be things like no, but things like the ensonic Sonic Mirage have those kind of interfaces, where it's literally an increment button. And
0: every control has to go through that. I was thinking something more on the kind of, like, semi-demonic level, where, like... In order for you to, like, change a parameter, you have to, like, say something or, like, type a sort of certain, like, code thing in exactly the right way just to increment by, like, one tiny value. Have you seen that thing of worst possible volume controls? (laughs) No,
1: but I think that's what I'm describing. Somebody did exactly that with worst possible volume controls. And it have things like... A pull-down list with 256 numbers in it, <laughs> randomly ordered. It's got one where you, um, one where you pull back oh, that's brilliant. like a, a, a catapult and you have to shoot a ball to land at the volume point. It's a brilliant. It was a few years ago ago. It's an amazing thing of the worst possible volume drop.
0: exactly what I'm describing. It's got
1: one where I think you move your laptop and the accelerometer steers it to the right level.
0: Oh God! I don't know why it fills me with such joy. <laughs> just like it's the opposite of great. I mean, I want to see a DX7 version of that. Oh man! <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes. So yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I think everything's good. You're not being ripped off, um, except when you can't afford something. Then just buy the cheaper option, or just use a computer. Because just use a computer. Just, just use, a- use pure data. I mean, just use pure data. It's free. I don't know. Build a like. You just use a Raspberry Pi that you, the one that you get off the front cover of a magazine that costs yeah. five pounds and make some. That, that can probably run pure data, can't it? And oh, a Raspberry Pi can definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't live. think you
1: can buy Raspberry Pis anymore though because of the chip shortage.
0: Oh God! I believe they're
1: now quite they're expensive. Now with
0: a thousand quid. <laughs> the five is a they're thousand. They're going on reverb. Shit! For twenty grand, like your yeah. mini drive. Well, do you have any more questions? What's the future of music technology? I think people people now have a much clearer idea of who you are than they did before you came on this podcast. I hope so. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. All right, mate. Don't sound very convinced. I was. I don't know why I sounded so not convinced. But it was late. Tom, thank you for kindly interviewing me. That was weird, wasn't it? It was a bit weird. Um, But of course, Tom is a professional. He is a journalist at heart, or has been certainly. And so um, I felt I was in very good hands. And of course, as you can tell, it was allowed to just spiral into chat about anything and everything. So I hope you found it valuable or got something from it. Um, I want to I reflect back on the conversation, although on this occasion the conversation was kind of focused around my own thoughts. Um, and I think there's that sort of point where I wanted to just elaborate on the whole the difference between a review and a demo, it's something that Tom highlighted is a thing that he was kind of interested to hear about. And I think I can sum up, like go further, like – Gear is intensely personal, and I think, like, on some level, the function of a demo is to let you have an opportunity, like, by proxy to experience what a piece of gear is designed to do best, or in some cases, like, what it isn't even designed to do, that the demoer works out. But ultimately, the decision, like, the decision about whether to be excited or not comes from your genuine reaction. I may get excited, and I do when I make demos, because I am genuinely excited to have captured something that I feel is musically valuable. But at the end of the day, I feel I have such a clear conscience in the idea of making what is basically marketing materials for products, because the products speak for themselves in the demo. A demo is not me just talking exclusively about something. it's me showing you what it can do, and showing is proving you know nothing that's in these videos is faked like there's no video where I'm going to be like, oh, I'll just like actually like use a plug and fake the sound and then just make my hand movements match the thing. Well, that's just not a thing, so it's all like the genuine capabilities of the unit being ge- being demonstrated and if people get objectively excited or subjectively excited I should say then that is genuine it's a true reflection of what the thing can do the decision as to whether it's exciting whether it's good or whether it's valuable is yours not mine it's not mine to make i can demonstrate excitement but it's up to you whether you share in that excitement whether you see, believe, and empathize or share that passion? Are you seeing it do something that you know you want or that you know you would be able to make use of? And that's on you, not on me. And that's sort of the difference between the review because in a way, and I'm not dumping on reviews because reviews do have a useful function of helping you understand context, if you're, especially if you're new to a certain sector, if you're not aware of all of the different types of synth or different types of module, then I think it's hugely valuable that a reviewer can help give you some context that you may not have or possess because you just don't know yet. But I do think there's a difference when a reviewer is saying what they think. It's like reviewing music. It's like someone saying... I don't think this art is particularly valuable, but that's not theirs to say. How can they possibly say that art is more or less valuable? I just, I find that whole thing completely crackers because art is, it just, it isn't even intensely personal. It's, it really is only personal. Like it's the only value of art is in what you perceive in it. Because it's your world that you perceive. It's your person living this life. Whether or not someone says something is great. There's no relevance or no bearing on whether you might get value from that thing if you happen to be the one using it. And so in that sense, if someone is to say that I think this tool is useless or I think it's daft that this tool doesn't do that or that, maybe they're not aware of the fact that, you know, to hit a certain price point, a manufacturer had to omit certain features, or that they did so intentionally, because by adding those features, they were doing testing, or because of their own gut feeling, they felt that the device would become less useful because it would be bloated with features or, you know, that sort of thing. And it is absolutely a thing. And we kind of touched on that in the the chat, but I didn't sort of implicitly state. I was going to say at one point that, you know, everything is made to a price. That's another factor is even things that you would think of as incredibly expensive are made to a price. And there's a really good example of what that looks like or doesn't look like. And that's um, Axel Hartman's 20 synth. Go and look up Axel Hartman's 20, which is a synth design. By the way, just quickly, Axel Hartman is a, a interface and sort of a like designer, basically, for synthesizers, for hire. And lots of people in the industry use Axel Hartman, and his company design box, as like the designers to finish off the, the physical design of their devices. Hartman's 20 is basically the studio logic sledge engine in a chassis and design that, in his words, hasn't got any compromises. All of the compromises that you're not aware of have been taken away, and so this is truly a no-compromise synth, and the price is (laughs) €20,000. (laughs) <laughs> so, and I mean, you know, it's not for me to say kind of whether that is should be considered expensive or not, because I don't understand all of the aspects that go into it. But what I do know is that manufacturers want to try and charge a price that is as competitive as it can be, while still allowing them to develop more products and obviously pay off the development of that machine and for everyone involved to have a living and, and feed their children and buy a few synthesizers of their own. So... It's interesting to see how far it can go, you know, how expensive things can be versus what they actually are. And I think the the final sort of point I want to make, and it's something that Tom was kind of saying but when he pulled out the QI70 and the DR55, you know, when we talk about reviews versus demos, um, because a review is telling you what they think it's their opinion then in the moment as to the value of something. I just think that, that Tom's point about pulling up those devices and saying, well, aren't they weird, you know, these odd idiosyncratic things, he's kind of saying, in a way, they can be perceived as bad. It's like the, the rhythm wolf, you know. It could be perceived as bad, depending on the criteria that you apply to it. But give enough time, give enough inclination, and give someone limitations – someone who's passionate, who wants to do something desperately, and perhaps only has one of those devices, or that something strange speaks to them in those particular units, then they will make incredible music with what a reviewer may say or what most people may say is a terrible piece of gear. And to bring it all back to Richard James. Selected Ambient Works 85-92 to was made with arguably and probably mostly digital gear on an almost shoestring budget. And yet, the music has endured for decades. Which is all a long winded way of saying trust your gut and you can make good music with anything and you don't need much. Maybe just a computer, maybe just a QY70 or maybe a Rhythm Wolf and a 4-track and shit ton of attitude (laughs) i think that would be great so we return for more bleeps very soon i have some very tasty guests in the pipeline stay tuned oh and if you enjoy the podcast do consider going to patreon patreon.com forward slash mylar melodies consider hopping on the good shit patreon i really appreciate it. it helps me keep this thing going so be well and we'll see you next time Bye.